This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, Putin's war against Ukraine has taken another turn, and this time it's an unwelcome turn for several weeks there. The Ukrainians were winning on the battlefield and ambitious to go further and further in terms of regaining ground lost to Russia, not just since February when this began, this phase of it began, but even ground in the Donbass that they had lost in 2014. However, Putin, under pressure, I imagine, from people who are even more extreme and determined than he is, on his right, dangerous actually, has appointed General Sergei Sorovakin, who was the man who was in charge of the operation in Syria and in Chechnya before. His speciality is destruction. And he, as anyone who's seen Aleppo, for example, will understand, he's rather good at it. And he is now in charge. And they are hitting Ukraine very, very hard indeed. Yesterday, 30% of Ukraine's energy plants were disabled by artillery, basically rockets coming in, some of which got through, some of which didn't. But enough got through to cause alarming infrastructural damage. To discuss all of this now, it's a pleasure to welcome to the stand Konstantin Gurdjieff. Konstantin is an economist, he's Russian, he's a professor based at the University of Colorado in the United States. He's also adjunct professor at Trinity College, where he was for a long time here, one of the most popular and respected participants in our economic debates. Constantine, thank you very much for joining us again. Would you agree with my assessment that the war and the Russian approach to it has taken a turn which is working now in their favour, but which is quite brutal and is the work of someone who looks like they've done it before and we know Sorovakin did it in Syria and he did it in Chechnya. It's, ble- it's a pleasure to be with you, Eamon, um, as always. Now, one of the things that I would challenge you there on is the idea that the uh, war has turned in Russia's favor. Uh, we're expecting currently a pretty kind of pre-announced at this stage by both sides uh, offensive against Kherson, 
which is a major city, yes. uh, which is a major strategic asset. Um, it's the last really big bastion um, on the right uh, bank of the Dnieper River, which is kind of splits Ukraine effectively into two parts um, and is a major strategic, uh, if you want, outpost. It is also under the threat currently of the infrastructural collapse of several dams up the um, Dnieper River, which is heavily dammed. One of those dams would be, if it were to be collapsed, uh, either by Ukrainians or by the Russians, for that matter, uh, would cut off a very much needed supply of water to Crimea, which is one of the biggest premises and biggest drivers for the occupation of the southern strip of the Ukraine during this campaign by the Russia. So if the Kherson offensive is successful, there is certainly going to be yet another, if you want, impetus for a strategic change in terms of the operations and strategies that Russia deploys in that region, because it would be a major psychological, but also military and strategic loss for Russia if they were to lose that city. And of course, conversely, it would be a major gain for Ukraine. So I'm not so sure that things are going well for Russia at all right now. And they pivot um, towards the kind of more resolute, if you want, and more um, traditional warfare type of tactics, uh, where you hit infrastructure of the opposing side uh, very heavily, where you cut off transportation routes, uh, where you inflict incalculable damages um, through remote bombing, uh, whether it is through the um, traditional air force means or through the what they call nowadays suicide drones. Um, it doesn't really matter, but that kind of you know burn and scorch the the yes. the, the rear and the rear guard of the um, of your opponent uh, first, and then push uh, through the uh, front front line itself. That kind of a warfare is seemingly something that they're preparing for. So Rovikin, as you mentioned, they would be a pretty good candidate for it. He is brutal. He has the history of um, his troops committing um, war crimes, uh, or at least he has been accused of committing the war crimes um, before. Um, I should stand corrected here. Of course, there hasn't been really any legal confirmation of that. Um, but anyways, um, and he certainly is very resolute uh, operator. One of the things that we have seen the change so far on the ground is that yesterday Sorovikin came out with a very strange and unusual statement for somebody who would be in the leadership of the Russian military, uh, which was very frank and very open about the possibility for taking hard, making hard choices in Kherson. What the hell does he mean exactly by it? We don't know. Yes. They're evacuating people right now or deporting people, whichever way you want to phrase that really, um, out of Kherson. Um, and um, it seems like you know what he's preparing for is either a major defensive operations or potentially withdrawing from uh, the right bank of Dnieper um, to the left bank of Dnieper and defending then the crossings across the river um, as a kind of last resort. So we don't know what's going to happen and we don't really know whether he's going to be effective or not. But as you said, they are hitting very hard infrastructure in Ukraine, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine in particular. Um, and of course, that is going to have a long-term impact on Ukraine's ability to defend itself. Now, at the heart of this struggle, it's a struggle, of course, between Ukraine and Russia, but it is also a struggle between Russia and what we call the free world, certainly the West. And that includes the United States of America, Europe. It does not significantly include China, of course, Iran, India, or the Saudis. So there is a feeling now that the liberal democratic law-based countries of the West are part of this struggle. And a key thought that we had 
from February 24th onwards when this began was that the West could use sanctions, economic sanctions, effectively. That if you take Europe and the United States of America and all of the, the other players in the West, Russia could be brought to its knees. I think that phrase was used, not by you, I should say, probably by me and others like me, and sanctions would get them, and the Russian people wouldn't be able to deal with it. You actually gave us a good steer early in this campaign when you said it would be June or July before they began to hurt. But reading your latest thoughts on it, the Russian economy is actually flying. It's doing better than it's ever done before. And, <laughs> well, in, in some of the metrics, shall we say. That, that's correct, yeah. I mean, it's very selective reading of the what's happening in the Russian economy on the ground. But we haven't brought them to their knees economically. Certainly not. And, 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 and we are, in many ways, with the energy crisis, as you know, and the economic deprivation in the West, we're suffering pretty, pretty heavily. Yeah. No, look, I mean, you've narrated it pretty clearly, and I would agree with your assessment there. Uh, a lot of us, myself included, uh, are pretty shocked now that our regional kind of outlook or analysis of what this level of sanctions can do to a country didn't pan out, didn't play out as well as the Western uh, powers who impose those sanctions uh, have planned for. Now, there's several reasons for it. One of those you mentioned, for example, this strange dichotomy that we have in the West that we are the world, that once yes. we impose uh, those sanctions, everyone else falls in line. In fact, the majority of the population around the world currently lives in the countries which did not impose any sanctions on Russia. Yes. And many of those countries actually expanded trade with Russia as a result of that. The, so one side of this is that, say, for example, you're looking at the experts, Russian experts, in the, last, in the first nine months of this year, they have grown 21% yes. in dollar terms. Um, that is, you know, despite the fact that there are payment sanctions and restrictions, there are shipment sanctions and restrictions, and there are actual transactions such as export and import sanctions and restrictions that have been imposed. So one of the things is that the regime, sanctions regime imposed in the West has been effectively kind of like, you know, had a lot of holes in it and still does. Yeah. It's not biting hard enough, really, as we hoped it would. There are other considerations. You mentioned the energy crisis. Energy crisis is in combination with the monetary policies that the central banks are pursuing currently, means that the Russian experts, which are priced or valued in dollars, even if they're not yes. paid for in dollars, Strong. are benefiting from the both sides, right. price inflation, and also at the same time, increase in the value of the dollar. Right. So, I mean, that plays in the hand also of Russian economy. But one of the crucial things there is what you said, is I think we have to realize that when we look at aggregate numbers, such as the growth rate in the economy, GDP, or when we look at, for example, uh, things like aggregate exports and imports and the trade balances and current account balances, all these macroeconomic statistics are not necessarily telling us what's happening on the ground. Yes. A lot of people in Russia are, do, you know, are carrying the cost of those sanctions. The cost of living has increased. The uh, wages and uh, earnings are not catching up with that. So in real terms, they are you know, certainly paying a certain price for it. I mean, by any possible means, nothing close to what Ukrainian people are paying for this war. Um, but you know, there is pain and there is discontent um, within Russia as well over the economic effects of what is being witnessed. The other thing is also 
Russian capacity, for example, to produce munitions um, and supplies, military supplies have been significantly reduced. So they have to now purchase uh, the likes of drones, for example, and their own drone program has been thrown a few years back now by the lack of imports of technologies, um, by the lack of imports of components, um, and so forth. So there is a lot of those issues there. The others, the third part is there's always opportunity cost. And we as economists recognize that as a major, you know, major factor into the future capacity of the economy to grow. In Russia's case, the current status quo of sanctions implies the opportunity cost of not investing in the new productive capacities, not investing in new technologies, but also not investing in development of new and past markets. Yes. So in other words, by, for example, Gazprom might be doing okay selling LNG through, from the East Coast of Russia, from the Pacific Coast of Russia, liquid, out yes, to the yes. rest of the world, but they are foregoing potential large-scale investments in high-value-added activities in European market. Ten years from now, that's going to, you know, that's going to come as a bill as a result of it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now we saw today, Constantine, and you may have seen it, that President Biden is releasing more of the American emergency store of oil. He has the midterm elections coming up in three weeks' time. The price of gas, as they call it in America, is hurting the Democrats, and he is exercising his right as president to release this oil. But even a country as economically powerful as the United States can't really win quickly against Russia. The point you made about the long-term damage I take, 
But, you know, as I saw in a tweet of yours, it's 21%. You just told us that year on year. For quarter two in 22, it was the second highest current account surplus on record. And in quarter three, it was the third highest surplus. What does that say about two things? The ability of Western banks and Western nations to block these sources of money or indeed the will they may have to block that money. Does it tell us anything? At the beginning of the conflict, the will was there. Now there's, we see in some of the, I wouldn't call them big cracks, but some of the kind of fracturing, light fracturing happening in Europe uh, between the usual suspects, okay? So the likes of, for example, Hungary, the likes of, for example, Italy, parts in Austria as well. There's always this grumbling yes. going on because, of course, the cost of living is impacting. You know, you mentioned that the United States is doing pretty much or going into pretty much desperate measures in order to shore up political um, election cycle. Um, you know, and, you know, of course, in Europe, the same is also applies. Yes. I mean, we saw the election in Italy, which has been pretty much, you know, predicted, well predicted in advance, but still nonetheless represents a major shocker. So, I mean, like you, you kind of, you have that, yes, but then nonetheless, I mean, the sanctions are still there. The only problem with the sanctions is that uh, the sanctions is that in the last 20 years, roughly speaking, the rest of the world has wisened up to the ability of the United States to what we call weaponize absolutely every part yes. of the economic system, um, and not only economic system, but also legal system. So as a result of that, you have this movement which has been taking place through the G20 original yes. um, formulation and uh, onwards to kind of, if you want, create systems that allow countries to bypass the United States hegemony. And therefore, we are now in a very interesting scenario. Joe Biden is doing the release of the strategic oil and petroleum reserves um, precisely because uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus, um, which includes Kazakhstan and Russia, uh, the two countries, uh, yes. in addition to OPEC, they have made a decision that they're going to tighten uh, production levels and production quotas. That was driven by one, by one factor and one factor only. Saudi Arabia's concern about the United States yes. weaponizing global price of oil by colluding with the European Union, Japan, and other advanced economies and imposing cap on oil price yes. being chargeable to the Russian oil. Now, Saudis are not facing similar type of sanctions anytime soon, but they're painfully aware that if there is a precedent for that being set in the first place, then at a certain point in time, they might be on the receiving end of similar sanctions. So preemptively, they're actually basically saying, screw you. We're going to make sure that you have no such power by cutting the production. So this is a very interesting thing because it has nothing to do with the actual Russia itself or with yes, the war indeed. itself. No, it's, a, it's about it, it the commodity. It has to do with the long-term trend of global opposition to the U.S. hegemony. So yes. U.S. boxed itself now into, in the West, we boxed ourselves now into the scenario where to make sanctions actually bite against Russia, to make them credible, we have to deploy U.S. Navy to literally restrict movement across the seas for the Russians. Yes. Effectively, a blockade of Russia, like we had a blockade of Cuba, like we had a blockade of Iran. Iran and Cuba are fairly containable countries. Russia is massive. Not yes. only it is massive, it also has, it's a dominant in terms of the territory coverage over the whole um, Arctic um, Ocean. So, I mean, you have the, this situation where we have 
absolutely boxed ourselves into the scenario by using constantly weaponizing different systems of the economy, uh, global economy, we are about to take away our own power visibly. Now, Constantine, in the terms you've spoken there about the geopolitical, you know, interests, self-interests, the West, if I can use that phrase loosely, the West as we once knew it, if the United States, and there are many signs, as I'm sure you know, because you're there, that it might go isolationist, that it might, and many Republicans, for example, in favor isolationism, that it may well, in 2024, have a new president, and his name may be Donald Trump. If an isolationist, rogue, and I say that in inverted commas, rogue America, decided we don't want, this isn't our fight. We don't want anything to do with this. The West, effectively, is over. In a way, yes. And in a way, what's interesting about this is that we contextualize this into this kind of phraseology of this is the benevolent America. And what if America becomes non-benevolent? Yes. Let's face the reality. There's only 32% of the American people who support any sort of the United States intervention in Europe right yes. now. Yes. Now, there is a there is stronger support now for NATO in the United States. Yes. But most of the Americans do not support. That's not even on priority on their agenda. So if we're talking about a liberal democracy, representative liberal democracy in action, sooner or later, the politics of that liberal democracy will start resembling the willingness of the electorate and the interests of the electorate. And the interests of the electorate in America have been domestically focused for a good part of more than a decade. The 2016 election was all about that. It was very clear that you had a very much kind of centrist, um, neoconservative, foreign policy strong um, candidate, Hillary Clinton, against the very much domestic uh, and inward-looking candidate, populist candidate, uh, Donald Trump. He won precisely because he ran on the campaign issues that most of America is interested in. Now, the, the reality of the American life is that we have roads which are falling apart. We have bridges which are falling off. Yes. We have crumbling infrastructure. We have no high-speed rail. We have no, um, the basic systems of banking here are so backward that we still mail physical checks for payments. I mean, look, there's at a certain point in time, um, America is going to have to turn not so much inward, but to dealing with the issues it is facing. In the meantime, America has been already losing ground across the world. Again, not noticed by us because we are focused only on the advanced economies. No Latin American country, with the exception of Chile, currently supports the sanctions against Russia. Our closest and biggest trade and investment partner called Mexico is against us in those sanctions. Yes. So, I mean, that's one side, and that's our own backyard, effectively. The Monroe, Monroe Doctrine onwards is was supposed to make sure that this is our neighborhood in which we have a full say. We no longer do. We are no longer listened to. Nobody cares, really, okay? With exception of maybe a couple of countries. The same. Now, one, one other interesting fact. Fastest growing economy, global economy today, is Africa. Yes. United States trade with Africa, exports to Africa, have halved since 2008. Yes. Chinese have spent a lot of time with the Belt and Road Project and all of that. 
cultivating Correct, of course. Yeah. Let me run something past you, Constantine, and I ask you at the end whether your mother is still fond of, of Vladimir Putin. But he is the villain of the narrative that we are working on in the West. The United States have Hiroshima, Nagasaki, an atomic bomb, what they did in Vietnam and other places in South and Central America. There's a lot of reasons to really take our heads up out of the sand and stop demonizing Putin, who is undoubtedly a desperate and a bad man. But America has also, in its short life, done some pretty terrible, terrible things, including the use of atomic weapons, the first use in the history of the world. Now, in saying those things, I'm trying to put you and our listeners in the heads of a Russian, a Chinese person, an Indian, or indeed someone living in Vietnam or Mexico. That's, that is exactly what's happening in their heads, okay? Um, I don't think, genuinely, I do not think that there is a love for Putin anywhere no. currently. Uh, I don't think when you look at Putin's approval ratings or trust ratings, you know, in surveys around the world, they all have been collapsing since roughly, say, 2014 and continuously in decline since then. None of them are spectacular to begin with. Um, you know, and that's not even the point. The point, as you say, is that do we maintain going forward, do we maintain grand strategy? Do we form our geopolitical strategy on a premise that we are benevolent in one way or another, while the while Russia, China, and other powers are necessarily evil? In other words, is it black and white or is it gray? Europe has managed itself through the um, you know through the Cold War. Um, and since by trying to recognize that, that there is a distinction between black and white and then there is a distinction between gray and most of the geopolitics is about gray. It's yes. about finding the acceptable compromises, working with them, reconciling the difference when you can and taking opportunities. In a way, this war, and this is really the tragedy of this war, it derailed this process. It's made our world much more focused on this black and white distinction. Yes. Um, in reality, it's, it's hurting us, and it's going to continue hurting us after this war is resolved. I genuinely hope that this war is resolved by Ukraine regaining its territory, regaining its independence, and going on to be a genuinely independent, successful nation, building the society they want to build. Yes, I genuinely do so. But I don't see how that division of black and white is going to allow us to get there. And the question, that question is being asked now, not just by me, it's being asked by the likes of the Council for Foreign Relations in the United States, uh, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy uh, Journal, and so forth. It's not just academics who are asking that, but actual big policy heads as well, starting to scratch their heads and saying, as long as we keep seeing things in black and white context, um, you know, we're not going to resolve any of the issues that we're facing today. And the if you want, escalation of the opposition is going to continue. And as a result of that, we're heading towards the Third World War. Yes. Now, that's, that's the reality of it. So, in a way, the, you know, the silver lining of the horrors we, we are witnessing in the last, um, you know, since, the, since February this year yes. um, is that we are 
going through that process of reconciling mentally our own culpability in yes. you know creating the environment in which this kind of you know reflaring of the cold war with the hot war as well being present in the place um have been um taken place so for example i see now the democrats um some you know pretty prominent democratic party analysts in the united states starting to look at for example us relations with saudi arabia yes. not from the prism of just you know how dare you but also from the prism of hold on a second we enabled that yes to a large extent and we enabled that through the things that were unspeakable a year ago yes. things like say for example reminding of the human rights abuses reminding of the campaigns around the world that saudis have carried out using united states weaponry uh which targeted civilians yes. which targeted civilian infrastructure agriculture and so forth caused famine uh so as a result of that we are starting to kind of get to the point of maybe we will have that moment of reconciliation ourselves and we do need to have that moment of reconciliation things you and I talked about earlier yes. the fact that we live in a delusional world in which we believe that we the west are the only power yes. that matters uh we have to reconcile our past exactly. with the realities of today in order for us to move forward exactly now Before I let you go Constantine and we are extremely grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us the winter that's to come the next six months that's to come I can see you smiling already how <laughs> difficult economically is it going to be for the people in the west supporting Ukraine I must say I'm smiling because I'm hearing the phrase winter is coming from my better half here all of the time <laughs> because she's yes. very concerned about Colorado winter. Yes. We do get pretty cold weather and a lot of snow. I <laughs> okay. love it, you know, my kids love it. Yeah. She's kind of on the more <laughs> reserved side about this. You know? yeah. So anyways, that's why I'm smiling. Um it's going to be a very painful winter. We have some supplies in Europe in particular. Here's the issue really. In the United States it will be okay because the United States is self-sufficient yes. in key sources of of energy. um between the natural gas in particular and other forms of fossil fuels um nuclear power is kind of you know okay we did scale it back quite significantly especially in california we slowed down that process now so hopefully we're not going to go you know and cut much more nuclear capacity during the middle of the crisis so you know that's kind of an interesting thing in itself you know that you know general mix of energy policy and long term development and investment europe is in a tough situation Europe is in a very tough situation because even though uh, miraculously Europe has managed to store enough gas um in terms of its storage cap- capacity that was actually quite impressive to be able to do that um it still faces significant uncertainty should the weather be very inclement yes and also should the industrial demand is going uh, continue to increase or not here's the biggest interesting thing um the chemical industry in Europe is effectively at a standstill right now because it can't produce anything because it doesn't have energy and doesn't have hydrocarbons as inputs as well into production um should we actually want to restore that industry to productive capacity we will have to then choose between heating homes and produce an output and employing people in that industry so that's a very significant issue um overall i would not be surprised and i think that's pretty much kind of consensus forecast that europe is going to experience a recession yes during the 2023 um which is of course contrasting uh, russia now being projected to exit recession 
uh, by the beginning of 2023. I'm not sure how much you know I put currency I put into this kind of forecast, but most of the forecasters today expect Russia to have positive growth in 2023. Um, so you know what is also questionable and what is also really problematic from Europe's point of view is that having an older population, having a population that is high, at, at higher risk of fuel poverty, yes. uh, Europe is going to have to deploy much more significant resources in order to offset that or compensate for it. So it's a fiscal expenditure. And it's a fiscal expenditure which will happen at the time of monetary tightening. That means that while we might be able to protect uh, the most vulnerable households, we will increase the degree of vulnerability then amongst the middle classes. Yes, it's basically then a trade-off between: do you get to pay your mortgage, or do you get to uh, pay yes. uh, for the hidden? Konstantin, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Konstantin Gurdjieff. He's at Trinity lecturing every year. Uh, he's adjunct professor at Trinity and also professor at Colorado University in the United States. Always a fascinating man to talk to, and we're very grateful to Konstantin, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.